2: Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union, our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
1: This facility is a mess, totally not up to imperial standards. He says
0: that it's due to his haste. He could perform tidier necropsies of the alien species
1: requested, but it would require more time. Lord Vader has absolutely forbidden a third episode. The analysis needs to be completed today. The surgical
0: droid is requesting that we each hold a flap of tissue.
1: I am just here to supervise. Doesn't he have extra arms for precisely this reason? Those are for waving around. (sighs) All right, then. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe
0: McCormick, and we're back with part two of our Star Wars Alien Necropsies. Uh, so in the last episode, if you haven't heard that le- uh, yet, yeah, you should probably just go listen to that one first, where we discuss what we're doing here and then and then come back and rejoin us for this one. But hey, if, if you're all caught up, here we are again. And last time we talked about some aliens from the Star Wars galaxy we talked about some vacuum dwellers like the exogorth and the minox and compared that to some real world biology both uh, both definite and hypothetical and we also talked about the Jedi Togruda a, a powerful and honorable species of alien with some with awesome stuff on their heads but but we're
1: back again and i and i think it's heads up first again today isn't it it is. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned the Togruta because I, cause basically it comes down to the situation where you have various scenes in Star Wars, uh, cantina scenes, Jedi Council scenes, etc., where part of the fun is like, wow, look at the alien diversity and look mm-hmm. at all the strange things going on with with morphology, with uh, with these aliens' heads and bodies. But of course, if we're looking at things from a biological standpoint, Things are shaped certain ways for a reason. Things have evolved into different forms for a reason. And those strange heads you see just filling up the space—if we were—if we we're to look at them with scientific scrutiny, uh, and you know, and also lean into the, uh, you know, to into the imagination, into the fantasy a bit, you know, all these things have a purpose, and and we can. We can turn, of course, to to canon and to the the fiction itself to get some of those answers. But then a lot of the fun is in ex- extrapolating and saying, "Well, what else could it be used for?" Or if the thing they're telling me is true, what are the ramifications? Often the unexplored ramifications of that.
0: Right. What can you uh, deduce about the ancestral environment of the creature that confronts Luke in the Mos Isley Cantina
1: with the weird little lobes on his chin? <laughs> Uh I actually know the answer to that one. I think that was that one has been described in canon I think it's canon anyway, as being um like a, a surgical uh it's like a self surgical uh addict. So oh. that so all those weird features are at least partially the result of self surgery. Wow. I think that's right. Could be wrong on that. We might have to take that out if I'm wrong. But uh but I believe that's the case. That is not the answer I expect. Wait, are you talking about the guy who talks to Luke
0: or just the guy who grunts? No, I I meant the guy who grunts at him, who has the weird little kind of like the butt on his mouth or, or chin area.
1: Uh, yes um, i don 't know as much about those guys but but okay. they are they are described at length in some of the books that um, uh, that i 've looked at. one of which I want to go ahead and mention is Star Wars Alien Archive, which is a, just a wonderful illustrated tome of aliens from all i think all the Star Wars movies up through solo and it had just wonderful illustrations, uh, nice little write ups about them it 's one of these books that um, that I got from my my son. Sometime last year, early last year, and we've already like worn it out. There are pages falling out of it. Uh, you know, anytime you get the book out, you have to like reinsert different parts of it that have come come apart. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's seen a lot of a lot of wear and tear and love. Uh, so I, I highly recommend that one. Yeah, I think we've uh, talked many times before about our
0: our love for the illustrated encyclopedias of fictional worlds, and and this yeah. is a great one.
1: But the, 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 the first selection I want to make here today is, um, is not a creature from a cantina. It is, in fact, a creature from, uh, the, for, that we first encounter in the Jedi Council scenes in uh, Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Now, I don't know if you remember uh, these, these guys or not, or really, there's mainly one guy that we encounter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the species, they're known as the Sarians.
0: Oh, this is the guy who looks like a wizard, but with a tower head. So it's almost yes. as if the, the tower of Isengard has been incorporated into Saruman's skull.
1: Yes, these, uh, these were a bipedal, largely humanoid species. We're told they're native to the planet Syria, and they're most notable for their enlarged, vaguely conical craniums, though they lack the pronounced cone heads of uh, the Rimulakians of, uh, of cone heads fame. Um, we're told that they have two hearts, the second of which is uh, said to supply extra blood and oxygen to their most curious uh, neurobiology, and that is a binary brain. Ah, okay. I can see why this caught your attention. Yes. So what is meant by a binary brain? Well, in, uh, again, the excellent illustrated Star Wars Alien Archive, it is said that the Syrian binary brain is, quote, able to process many things at the same time, sort through data quickly, and also consider two sides of the same argument simultaneously. Hmm. Parallel processing. Yeah. And it's also been suggested, I think, in perhaps this is like an extended universe, uh, you know, novelization thing. Uh, But it's been suggested that this sort of brain structure allows at least certain members of, uh, of, of the Syrian species, especially like force sensitive individuals to explore both the light and the dark side of the force in ways that are maybe somewhat safer compared to just normal dabbling in the dark side. Oh, I see. So the
0: understanding is that normally if you are to explore the dark side, it's kind of not possible to just do that as a curiosity, like learning the dark side necessarily will corrupt and contaminate your brain. And so if you have a divided mind like this, maybe you can sort of quarantine the half of your brain that does get corrupted with that so that it doesn't spread to the other half. Is, is that what you're saying? That is what that is what
1: I believe the argument is. I haven't actually read anything um, or viewed anything where they get into that. But certainly if anyone out there has, if you're familiar with with whatever novelization or or novel or comic this happens to be from, I'd love to hear a little bit more. Now, the most famous and recognizable Sarian is without a doubt Jedi Master Kai Adi Mundi hero general of the Clone Wars, who fought alongside the likes of Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi. He fought at the First and Second Battles of Geonosis and perished during the invasion of Megiddo with the 21st Nova Corps when Supreme Chancellor Palpatine initiated Order 66. Ah. He was skilled with a lightsaber. He was a skilled force combatant, but he was equally known and respected for his logic and tactics, that big brain of his.
0: Yeah, that would make sense. I I seem to recall his death scene. I think it's in Revenge of the Sith he's like running across a is it across a bridge or something, yeah, and, I think it's a
1: bridge battle, and all the clone troopers start shooting him in the back, yeah, yeah, yeah. so so he, he def- definitely goes down, but you, you, you so you don't see a lot of him in the live action stuff, but um in and, and in those prequel films he was played by an actor by the name of Silas Carson under heavy um uh, effects makeup but in the clone wars animated series uh, the main one he was voiced by british israeli actor brian george who does a great job with him and they have a little more time to flesh him out and in the 2003 clone wars series from uh, gindy tardakovsky you don't have um you don't really have a lot of character development there, but you have a lot of action. That's a very action-centric series. Mm-hmm. And in that, um, uh, Master Mundi is an absolute shirt-ripping beast. Like, he's running around with like his head bandaged and his shirt torn open with all these muscles, and he's just, Whoa. like, you know, killing the thousands of droids. It's, it's pretty fun. Oh, wow. So he's, like, your hunter-from-the-future mode. Yeah. <laughs> just slaying. But, you know, okay, it's impressive that he can do stuff with a lightsaber and then he can go into beast mode, but... A main thing we're going to talk about here is this idea of a binary brain. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know, there's no definitive word on the exact structure of the Sarian brain or brains, but I think there are essentially a couple of ways to look at what might be going on inside that skull of theirs. Okay, let's let's hear it. What's the first option? Okay, first option would be just, of course, a supersized brain that enables this binary mental process. Composed of two lobes like ours, or maybe more lobes, I don't know. You know, when you're getting into an unknown alien brain, who's to say, right? Sure. And uh, Syrian brain evolution could certainly follow the ice cream scoop model of human brain evolution. Uh, I think we've discussed this on the show before, but as explained by Kyle uh, Moon-Kittrick in a 2010 Discover magazine article, quote, evolution built our brain by taking simpler brains and just piling more brains on top, like adding <laughs> scoops of ice cream to an ice cream cone. <laughs> yeah, Um I I think
0: that's a good way of thinking about it. I mean, obviously, we always want to be careful not to oversimplify the way we think about the structures of the brain, because brains are complex and, and all that. But in rough terms, I think that is sort of true, like at the the lower levels of the brain, you have um, the the more sort of automatic processes of the body and the more uh, base level things like emotional type reactions. And then when you get further and further into the younger parts of the brain, younger in an evolutionary sense, uh, toward the the top and front of the brain, you get these, you know, these cortexes, which are very involved in executive function and a lot of the things we think of as higher level thinking and behavior.
1: Yeah, so Munkentrick... Describes like the first the first layer is actually the cone and that's the nervous jellyfish cone (laughs) and then you get your instinctive lizard scoop uh, piled on top of that then the memory mouse scoop. Then the thinking the thinking ape scoop on top of that. So each layer brings with it great pros that enable the, the human brain to function and evolve, but also arguably certain cons. And that's one of the things they get into in this article. But for our purposes, yeah, I think you could look at the Syrian uh, the brain as essentially a human level brain with additional scoops towering atop the rest of the cone, enabling this vastly increased uh, functionality.
0: Now, you might think, well, what would the cons of having higher brain function be? And I would just say, like, eh, I, I'm not aware of any
1: reptiles that really get bogged down in rumination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I and I really hope, uh, certainly a Jedi Master wouldn't have. Well, Jedi Masters have to deal with the dark side, too. I mean, that's kind yeah. of the thing, right? Like, higher cognition means you're open to the dark side.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to recall in the prequels that a lot of Jedi training is about purging emotions or at least certain kinds of emotions maybe not to the full spock extent yeah uh, but at least like not letting impulsive emotional reactions guide your thinking to yeah be clear and to be you know to to be able to use clear thinking in your mind when when our, our natural tendency would be to get
1: hot-headed right uh yeah and then uh, there's a lot of buddhist uh, uh Buddhism in there as well uh, dealing with like the idea of avoiding attachments and all yeah though so we, we see that doesn't necessarily work out all that well for those who aspire to it right in those films but but even like uh, in, in terms of like confronting the dark side though like that's always mm-hmm. been a part of the uh, of the of the Star Wars world I mean back to Empire when Luke goes into that swamp and he's completing his training like one of the things he does is he encounters that that vision of of Darth Vader that is also a vision of himself
0: Right. I mean, I think we're supposed to take that as like Luke is being uh, confronted by the the possibility of what would happen if he himself were seduced by the dark side, which, of course, he does. He does play pretty dangerous in in the movies, right? He gets close. Yeah,
1: yeah. Anyway, that's basically this is like one idea uh, okay. looking at this big brain, just one big brain in there.
0: Right. Uh, so it's like built up level by level. And maybe the, the additional brains are are something like uh, what you would put even on top of our neocortex, maybe like they've got like yeah. a neo-neocortex or something. Yeah.
1: Now, another interpretation, uh, and I think – A more exotic one and also maybe more fun, maybe more uh, sci-fi fantasy, uh, but also one that I think I've seen visually represented somewhere. I tried to hunt it down to see if I could because I would have put it in our uh, inside of our uh, notes if I could, but I couldn't find it. But I think I've seen this represented visibly. And that is the idea that Syrians actually have two brains inside their skull, one positioned right on top of the other, just straight (laughs) up two brains inside their heads. So
0: that would mean one of the brains is closer to the heart. Maybe that makes it easier to get blood flow to that one.
1: Well, that's why they have two hearts, Joe. Remember? Oh, okay. <laughs> so the, the idea is that that second heart is, I guess, powering the second brain or enabling just enough blood flow to get up there to, to work with both brains. Okay. Um, so uh, I, I want to stress, I'm not talking two brains here in the sense that the human brain consists of two hemispheres connected by the corpus callosum. But two separate brains, perhaps each consisting of two hemispheres, uh, each. And uh, I, sh- I should also add that that some descriptions refer to Syrian brains in a way that does seem to indicate two brains. And again, they do have two hearts, so I guess the um, duplicity seems to to work out here. So of these two, I tend to lean more towards the actual two brains inside their their heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, Though so I guess another, you could do a third option. It would be a variation on idea number two, and that would be that they just have a very large humanoid brain, but the hemispheres are not connected by something like the corpus callosum.
0: Oh, no, that's very interesting. Uh, I want to say some things, but I also don't want to preempt you because I know you're going to get into talking about split brain experiments here. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. For sure. Uh, but yeah, so the corpus callosum, at least we know in the human brain, enables a, a large amount of communication between the hemispheres. And in cases where the corpus callosum in humans has been severed, often a person can still live their life. Like you can function with your brain hemispheres severed and, and you can do things. But there are some very noticeable changes to, to, to how the brain or brains react to certain types of stimuli and scenarios under that condition.
1: Yeah, yeah. When the callosum has been severed. And then when you have like often it's it, you have to have certain um, uh, experimental scenarios in place yeah, uh, to make it become obvious, because otherwise the individual doesn't notice and the people who know them probably don't notice. Yeah, uh, but, but we'll get all, into all that in a second. Now, there are a lot of different directions you could go in here. Like, why? I mean, the big one is, like, why would they go in this direction? First of all, would it be natural? Would it be just an evolution? Or or would it be something that was engineered? And in either case, like, why? Would it have to do with, uh, like, a higher, you know, why would they need this, like, higher cognitive state? Would it have something to do with, uh, uh, you know, being an interstellar species or something to do with their their home environment? I don't know. Mm. Well, I mean, it makes me think about
0: how there are species on Earth that have a more distributed model of intelligence and nervous system control. And a great example Mm. would be octopuses. Uh, You know, like the octopus, of course, like they've got a central brain, but then they have ganglia throughout the body that are sometimes written about. And you could argue to what extent this is a fair characterization, but they you could argue that octopuses in some ways also think with their arms in ways that are independent of the thinking that takes place in the centralized brain. Uh, So you can imagine there are scenarios where it's useful for an animal to have thinking or information processing happening at multiple different places within the body but the syrian seems kind of different because you can imagine with the octopus okay maybe somehow the arm needs to think independently of the central brain but this is two central brains two yeah. brains in the head so what's the what's like the second one doing differently how would that be distributed in a way that would be useful like the octopus's arm
1: yeah and and so in thinking about possibilities, you know, we also come into ideas about, like uh, philosophical or spiritual upgrades to the brain. I mean, why not if we're trying to de- determine where we go uh, from here? I mean, it, it seems like that's worth thinking about. I should also just go ahead and add that obviously big headed aliens is just a long, a long standing trope, uh, you know, going back to the outer limits and so forth. So uh, it's not like they invented the idea of big headed aliens and big headed future humanoids. Uh, it's been pretty much standard. Uh, uh, but but uh, I don't know that I have. I'm sure there's some sci-fi out there predating this in which a, a human had two brain or a humanoid had two brains. Aside from Steve Martin, but <laughs> the uh, man with two I'm, brains, yeah. yeah. But I'm not. I I'm not aware of it off the top of my head. But, but a lot of these considerations, like when we're talking about like what, you know, what does this mean? What would two brains be like? I mean, it, it basically comes down to, to that. What would it be like to have two brains? What would, it conceive, what would conceivably be the mental state of an individual like Master Mundi here with two brains in their head?
0: Ah, so now you're getting into subjective experience. And this, of course, touches on really big questions that are still unsettled in in, in human science and philosophy, stuff about like where consciousness resides and what it consists of.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and ultimately, yeah, this is going to be unanswerable and we just have to sort of speculate and have fun with the speculation. But on one level, you have to say that ultimately the mind of a alien being might just be impossible for us to comprehend. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just might be that different. On the other hand, you could say, well having two brains in your head like this, it would just be like our mental experience. Uh, because as we alluded to earlier, the the human brain consists of two cerebral hemispheres connected by the corpus um, uh, callosum, each with many different modules, all of these acting in concert with each other, interconnected. And we explored this at length in our episodes on split brain experiments. Um, and, of, and of those experiments, most interestingly, one of the big take was, if, is, is that indeed, if you split the brain, you essentially split the person as well. Um, we're talking one person per hemisphere of the br- brain, a division of self, not one that is obvious to the individual or to people around them, but again, presents itself when revealed through various experiments, uh, particularly the, the Nobel winning work of neuroscientists uh, Roger Sperry and Michael Gazzaniga in the 60s and 70s.
0: Yeah, and so we go into much more depth in in that pair of episodes from I think it was a couple of years ago now, so you can go look mm. those up if you want the full scoop. But th- they did find some very interesting things that I will say um we also talked in that episode I think about how there has been some research in recent years that sort of challenged their original findings, but people have pushed back against that research too. So it seems like, you know, this is one of the many things in in psychology and neuroscience that's still an ongoing question. But at least what they appeared to find is that You can, for example... In a patient who's had their hemisphere severed through this radical uh, severing of the corpus callosum, which is done not for the purpose of the experiment, but it's done uh, specifically for people with really uh, treatment-resistant epilepsy to mm-hmm. prevent them from having uh, these recurring terrible seizures, uh, th- that uh, you can sever the corpus callosum. A person still reports being able to live their life generally, like it, it is not a debilitating thing to do to the brain, but it causes these strange things where, for example, it seems that some amount of information is prevented from being shared fully between the two different parts of the brain. And so, for example, it is widely uh, that in in most brains, it is the left hemisphere that seems to do the talking, like the language Mm -hmm. interactions with the outside world. And so you can present stimuli that are only within the sensory awareness of the right hemisphere of the brain, say, by presenting it in a certain part of the visual field, And so the parts of the body controlled primarily by the right hemisphere of the brain can do things that seem to reflect knowledge of the stimulus that you have showed that hemisphere of the brain. But the person can't talk about that knowledge. They don't seem to have linguistic awareness of it, which is extremely weird.
1: Yeah. And at times it kind of comes off as a sort of subtle duality of self. Uh, some of the most interesting ideas that come, come out of it, Gazzaniga wraps up in his interpreter theory, which, which again, we've discussed on the show, in which the, the left brain hemisphere contains some function uh, that he calls uh, the interpreter, which creates a sense of self, even if it is a completely false sense, by coming up with a, a post hoc explanation for behaviors.
0: Yeah, that the, there's this function that's largely seated within the left hemisphere that sort of tells the narrative story to your own brain that explains why you're doing what you're doing. It yeah. creates that moment-to-moment stream of consciousness that helps you understand your own behavior, even though it seems a lot of your own behavior is caused by things that are not actually within your awareness. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's not downstream from your consciousness, but upstream from your consciousness.
1: Uh, now, I, I should also throw in that in there they did experiment with animals as well, and, um, and you know there are limitations when you're looking at animal brains and you know trying to compare it to to human brains, but uh, but they they found that if they produced a split brain in some of these animals, uh, first of all, of course, each side seemed to function independently of the other, but also that an animal with a split brain could memorize double the information. Uh, so th- that basic idea. Again, we could at least when talking about Star Wars, we could extrapolate to say, well, maybe if you did have two independent brains in your head, yeah, maybe you could uh, process and contain double the information. So that's really interesting. But I'm also really interested in this
0: idea of exploring both sides of the force with the brain like this that you mentioned earlier.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So with that in mind, let's consider a couple of take homes. And again, we're kind of cherry picking here. But a couple of take homes from the split brain research uh, uh, that Gazanaga put forth. First of all, the interpreter function of the left brain makes it more uh, makes it more likely to distort recall of events, and that the non interpreting non explaining right brain has a more accurate recall function ah
0: so it's not telling itself a story to post talk rationalize whatever is it's
1: experiencing it's logging information in a more objective sense, yeah, like one side is telling a story crafting a story Mm -hmm. and retelling a story and the other side is 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 recalling events saying what happened also the left and right hemispheres have different problem-solving approaches the right hemisphere bases its judgments on simple frequency information while the left relies on the formation of elaborate hypotheses so this makes me wonder like which side would lean dark side because You know, the the left is, again, partial to distorted recall, the very sort of distortion that we see in the fall of, say, Anakin Skywalker. But it Mm -hmm. also relies on... Uh, you know, those, uh, the idea of elaborate hypotheses, which, again, matches up with some of, some of uh, Skywalker's inner torment or, or uh, you know, as well as the expressed worldview of, uh, of his master, Darth Sidious Emperor Palpatine, right? Uh, and, and perhaps the light, uh, you know, or the right side of the force, uh, the side of the brain here, is more about sim- simple frequency information and accurate recall, Mm. Uh, so instead of the distorted worldview, like this is the the world as it is, like a, a more logical approach to reality.
0: So if there is anything to interpreter theory, it seems to me pretty clear that it would be the left side that's the dark side, right? Because what's the dark side do? The dark side, you tell a story in which your actions are justified because of some reason, right? Well, I had to do
1: it because I had to save Padme. Right, right. Where the logical side is like, <laughs> no, you're just like straight up killing people. Yeah. Uh, But then again, you know, what would Darth Sidious say to all this? What would would Palpatine say? Mm -hmm. And I think he might well argue that it's only through mental gymnastics that we arrive at the Jedi way. Mm -hmm. That the Jedi uh, exist because they're telling themselves this story over and over again. They're creating their own mythology to rationalize their tyranny. And that the dark side is just the shortest logical path. Like that Sidious is the, the the sane man in the universe that has been deluded uh, by this um, the, this ancient religion.
0: Darth Sidious makes a good point. You know, I think it would work better, actually, though, if Darth Sid- if the Sith Lords were not always saying, like, yes, we are the dark side. We, <laughs> we mm-hmm. are the bad guys. Like, what if Darth Sidious had been like, no, it's the Jedi who are the dark side?
1: <laughs> well, I think he also realized that, you know, dark side is good branding, you know? Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, it looks cool. I mean, seriously, who looks cooler? Darth Vader or what? Yoda or Obi Wan Kenobi? I
1: mean, yeah. Have you ever seen? There's an illustration. I think this is from a comic or something where they did an alternate reality where Darth Vader fully redeemed himself and survived at some point in, like, say, Return of the Jedi. Hmm. And then he's still in his armor, but now it's white armor. So okay. it's like a white white Darth, uh, Darth Vader outfit, and I mean, it's kind of a neat idea. I love the idea of exploring alternate possibilities, uh, but on the other hand, it just doesn't look as cool as it does in black. Oh, I think he should have
0: kept it. I mean, I I, I don't love anyway, like the simple like color coordinating of morality. I mean, like that's mm. dumb. I mean, yeah, and they already transcended in some ways. Like the stormtroopers are, are are dressed in in clean white, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think they should let Darth Vader keep his, his original armor. I mean, it looks looks awesome. Before we move on from the split-brain stuff, I just wanted to throw in, so so there's some more nuance on the subject, uh, that, uh, that that research I alluded to in recent years that's put some challenges to the original split-brain research, uh, I think a lot of that was associated with a researcher named Pinto, uh, I think named Yair Pinto, who I think is a Dutch neuropsychologist, and uh, basically what... Uh, that person and and colleagues have argued is that the split brain experiments actually just proved divided perception, not divided consciousness. Uh, Mm. But then people who uh, people have defended the original research coming back against that. I don't remember how all of the back and forth worked out right now, but uh, just be aware that that there is ongoing division about that. In fact, split brain researchers appear to be uh, somewhat
1: divided. We may say, (laughs) yeah, well, I'm of two minds myself on it. Um, Speaking of which, uh, back to the the Syrian binary brain, um, again, they're apparently noted for their ability to come at a topic from both sides simultaneously. Um, and uh, and I got to thinking about that. I mean, on one hand, I was wondering, again, is this something they do naturally or is it only accessible via training? Uh, but I suppose one way to really tackle the problem is, again, to come back to human cognition and to ask uh, what seems like it should be a pretty simple question. Is it possible for a human to think two things at one time, not to juggle between thoughts or to focus on like a combination of two things. Like, mm-hmm. you know, for instance, I can think about a human and I can think about a horse. You know, I can sort of go back and forth between the two. I can focus on the idea of a centaur and kind of in, involve, you know, both of them at once. But can I think about a horse and a human on like, on, on you know, and actually do parallel lines of thought at the same time. So
0: not this is a mixture between a horse and a human but to think simultaneously this is 100% horse and this is 100% human at the same time.
1: Right. Can I what's the business lingo dual track? doing tra- <laughs> oh track. yeah parallel path parallel path
0: yeah uh, i think that means something somewhat different but yeah 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 i know what you're saying uh so like yeah being able to i mean i think it's a really important thing in in uh, good mental hygiene and training your brain to work well that you are able to hold conflicting ideas in your mind in order to figure out which one makes more sense i mean i, I think it's our natural tendency to kind of Uh, to instead get a feel for conflicting ideas pretty quickly, figure out which one we're more attached to, and then just fully commit to that one and not consider the other at all. But I think also maybe you're getting at something different, which is not um, being able to consider conflicting ideas or conflicting explanations for something. You're talking more about like, having the focus of attention in the mind be two different things at the same time. Is yes. that what you're Okay, Okay. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a different thing. And that's also very interesting because yeah, this once again gets into like what is consciousness and one of the central features of consciousness seems to be this spotlight quality to it, right? That it, Consciousness seems to have a a basically like one focal point of attention at a time and other things can kind of intrude on consciousness suddenly. But if you are thinking about a horse, you're also not simultaneously thinking with the same level of focus and intensity
1: about a person. Right, right. And so this is something that um, a a psychologist by the name of Nick, uh, I believe it is Chater, I could have his last name pronounced wrong. If so, I apologize here. It's C-H-A-T-E-R. But he is the author of The Mind is Flat, The Illusion of Mental Depth in the Improvised Mind. And what he would argue here is that that we depend on a cycle of thought whereby a number of systems work to push forward ideas step by step. Uh, So he would argue, I think, if he were to weigh in on, on this topic, that our limited human neural capacity is only sufficient to pursue one goal at a time. And maybe, just maybe, doubled human neural capacity is what it would actually take to truly dual track something. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. So he's saying to to like consider, uh,
0: like to, you know, it's kind of how uh, when we're making like a to do list, you have to break tasks apart into into like individual steps and do them mm-hmm. one at a time. Uh, and uh, I find you know doing that for me, it definitely helps me organize uh, the the flow of of work a lot better. But maybe if you had a more powerful mind, if you had like two brains in your head. You could actually you you wouldn't have to break things into parts quite so much. You could you know consider uh, more sort of umbrella tasks with all of their subdivided parts simultaneously.
1: Yeah, and I think ultimately it, it's it's very difficult to imagine what that would be like. I mean, it's kind of like trying to imagine well, what would our view of reality be like if we could also uh, you know feel the magnetosphere or something you know or mm. uh, or, or you know see wavelengths of, of light that we we don't have access to that sort of thing. Um, Now, uh, the the author of The Mind is Flat, he was was also uh, a co-author on a paper uh, along with Elizabeth A. Mailer and Gregory V. Jones from 2001 titled Searching for Two Things at Once. And in this, the authors conducted an experiment into whether retrieval from semantic memory and autobiographical memory is exclusive, or whether people can search for two things at once. And they concluded that, quote, exclusivity was observed to occur in retrieval among multiple non-overlapping categories in both semantic and autobiographical memory. Again, they're, they're talking about, about memory recall here, but this also seems to get it sort of the same idea. I was reading a a summary of The Mind is Flat by Stephen Poole for The Guardian, and they summarized some of this by by saying, quote, we can't even see two or more colors at once, but switch between one at a time. In general, our richness of experience seems to be a construct. And we've touched on some of this before as well, especially with vision, about Mm -hmm. like how You know, we we have this idea in our mind that the whole everything we can see with our our eyes at one time are in like full color and maybe even full detail. But you don't have to really get too experimental. You can just uh, to, to realize that this is not the case. Yeah, and there are tons of
0: examples of this. Uh, we like uh, If you close one eye, you still feel like you have total vision and you can see all around, but in fact, there's a blind spot caused by your optic nerve and you just don't see that there is a blind spot there. Mm-hmm. Um, or one of the other examples we've often cited is colorblindness and peripheral vision. You like you believe that yeah. you can see color in your peripheral vision until you try it. Like somebody holds up different colored objects right at the edge of where you can see, and it turns out you can't. You know, you can't see different colors there. You can only see vague things. Something is moving, even though it totally like a hundred percent. It feels like I can see color in my periphery. Yeah.
1: So, so very roughly, if we take that idea and we we extrapolate it to cognition itself, you know, we can we see the the limitations. Of, of our focus we see the limitations of, of how we construct a world and focus on it you know and it is you could ba- basically break it down to the idea of we have the one spotlight uh, but if we had two brains in our head would we essentially have two spotlights that's very interesting and it
0: makes me wonder what the practical differences in like say a, a culture and a technosphere and a science developed by people with brains of that type would be like yeah like, how is art different if you can focus on more than one thing at a time? How how is uh, science and technology different if you can focus on more than one thing at a time?
1: Yeah, or even your your use of symbols and yeah, language, etc. I mean, it coming coming back to the idea of the centaur, the centaur exists to a certain extent because it combines two things into one and brags in aspects of both of those independent things, but. Would you would these ty- would these forms be necessary for um, uh, for the Syrians or would they by just by necessity would all of their hybrids be more complex chimeras that involve like multiple aspects like at least four aspects because in terms of just contemplating two parallels they can do that on their own they don't need a symbol to help with it. Hmm. This is
0: really interesting. I, I, I want more about the Syrians now. I, I want like yeah. Syrian focused Star Wars stories.
1: I want a Master Mundi um novelization to read. Somebody why do we not have one? Uh Mace Windu got his own book. It's really, am, really difficult to follow his inner monologue though. <laughs> oh man, it's it's actually two volumes. And uh, you have to read them at the same time. <laughs> that's why oh, it's never been. Oh
0: wait, no, that's a fantastic idea actually. You write two different novels that narrate the exact same events, <laughs> but they're one is from each part each brain in the head. That's mm. really, yeah, that could be good.
1: Now that would that would actually be a fun yeah, short story exercise if someone wanted to to keep it simple all right talk about the, his death like the final moments leading up to his death to his betrayal by the the clone troopers he was aside, he was working aside like what is one account of it and what is the other like i guess one account is kind of like i didn't see this coming at all the other account is is yeah that makes sense I guess. <laughs> yeah
0: i should have talked to the other brain about this before we ran out on that <laughs>
1: on the bridge yeah all right. Well, I I say we we close out on the Syrians for now. Um, obviously, there there are a ton of other weird brains and multi-headed things we could talk about in Star Wars universe. But uh, yeah, for for some reason, I think the, the Syrian was the one that, that captured my imagination the most here. This was a very good pick. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
3: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a man. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details.
2: Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
1: All right. What do you have, Joe? What do you have for us? Okay. Well, you
0: had to help me with the Star Wars aspect of this one, because I admit this is one that I backed into because I got interested in the analogy animal from reality first uh, to be Fully transparent. This is a type of animal that I first started looking at for our episode last week. I think it was about uh, the Sargassum seaweed. But then I realized that it didn't really fit super well into that episode. This animal is not especially associated with Sargassum, only in certain occasions. Uh, So I figured I would actually save it for this. And I found what I believe is a fantastic wedge to to get it into the Star Wars universe. But I felt like I I had to hold up a hand and be honest about where this comes from. (laughs) Oh, fair enough. Uh, but I wanted to think about bipedal aquatic humanoid aliens, sentient water creatures who stand up on two feet with a Homo sapiens posture. Now, the first one I thought about is is not your your excellent pick here. It's something that doesn't quite fit my animal as well. But uh, the first one I wanted to talk about is one of my favorites from childhood, Admiral Akbar from Return of the Jedi. And I think he's been featured in many other things since. But Admiral Akbar, the the noble, uh, brilliant, uh, big eyed commander of the rebel fleet during its attack on the second Death Star. Famously, he discovers it is a trap.
1: Yeah, he's a super fun character. Wonderful. Just wonderful uh, special effects makeup to create that guy and uh and that that species is, is fleshed out a bit more in the the clone wars animated series as well we get to go to their their home world of of uh mancala mm-hmm. which is this ocean world and it's also where uh the the Quarin live um i don't know if you remember these guys they were also i think first uh shown to us in return of the jedi but they're like a squid face guy yes uh, yeah they pop up in uh, Jabba's palace i believe
0: yeah, so Admiral Akbar species is called the Moncalamari, and they are native to this home planet of Moncala. But also, yes, the Quarins, these other creatures who look more like, so the Moncalamari are an amphibious species, and they look sort of—I I guess the closest analogy in Earth life would be—they look kind of like frogs. They've got frog-like eyes and kind of frog-like skin, and it would make sense since they're supposed to be amphibious. But the Quarins, uh, they look more like bipedal. Uh, humans basically, but with squids for heads. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think they've sometimes been called like kind of Cthulhu aliens. Yeah. (laughs) Now the Mon Calamari this does raise a number of questions itself because I wonder how does the bipedalism of the Mon Calamari evolve? Like bipedalism and limit even limited bipedal behaviors can be found in a number of terrestrial animals on earth. You've got birds and their extinct theropod dinosaur relatives, uh, some reptiles such as, uh, you know, the reptiles we've discussed in the past lizards that run on the water with two back legs, uh, of course in primates. So a number of animals will stand up on two legs, But almost all the cases I can think of with this involve animals that are standing on or walking on solid land or walking or running across the top of the water. And it's actually still a matter of debate in a pretty interesting way how human ancestors developed full-time bipedalism. One of the bygone hypotheses you've probably heard, this was from the old days, was that Uh, Human ancestors evolved bipedalism so that they could see over the tall grasses of the savanna, but I think Mm -hmm. this hypothesis is mostly discarded now. Uh, One of the main reasons is that it looks like from, from the fossil record that humans became bipedal when they still lived primarily in an arboreal environment, so around the trees, not in grasslands with tall grasses. Uh, And so uh, there are a number of competing hypotheses today, one of which that's pretty interesting, or I guess several actually get into the idea that bipedalism evolved because of the evolutionary advantages in various different ways of having free hands available for carrying things around while you move.
1: Yeah, as I'm hunting and gathering, like I need those free hands to hold like my my satchel of collected berries or mushrooms or the, the tools that I'm using. Yeah, to like uh, bring back
0: to your family from across a long distance or something yeah. like that. But there could be another explanation that's better. This is one uh, one of those things where I think the it's wide open. You know, there, yeah. there are tons of different uh, ideas competing. And, and so it's very interesting for that reason. But whatever the reason that, that human ancestors evolved full-time bipedalism, it does seem kind of weird to imagine bipedalism evolving in an aquatic or mostly aquatic species, like what are they walking around on? You know, are they Mm, walking around on the ocean floor In order to do that, it would seem like they would have to be very dense, right? Like they sink to the bottom and they need to stand up and walk around on the bottom. Uh, You'd imagine they'd mostly be geared for for swimming. Uh, Though maybe, I don't know, because of the Mon Calamari, it says that they're an amphibious species. Maybe they evolved bipedalism for whatever part of their life they spend walking around outside the water on the land, if they they do that at all. I don't know all that much about the Mon Calamari, but amphibious, (laughs) yeah, maybe.
1: Yeah, uh, in the the episodes of Clone Wars where they're they're more fleshed out, we we don't really all we see are I think some like big submersible environments and of mm-hmm. course a lot of like open water warfare that's taking place. So I don't know if that if, if ultimately we get much in the way of answers from that show either.
0: But in thinking uh, about other bipedal upright water aliens in the Star Wars universe, Rob, uh, you're going to have to help me with this one because you connected me to this species and I knew nothing about it previously. But there is a species from the Star Wars universe called the Nephran, N-E-P-H-R-A-N. And this is much closer to what I want to talk about here because this is a bipedal aquatic alien that's more like a crustacean, like a mm-hmm. bipedal shrimp or crab. They are said to come from an ocean world in the Star Wars galaxy called Nepotis, and the main example character of this species is a person from stuff I haven't seen called Therm Scissor Punch. Rob, can can you fill me in? You know about Therm?
1: Yeah, so this is a character if if memory serves <laughs> Pops up in the movie Solo, which, of course, the, the Han Solo okay. prequel, which um, I know some folks didn't care for. I We thought it was a lot of fun when we watched it mm-hmm. as a family. Uh, it certainly has some great aliens in it, for sure. And this is one of them. Uh, you know, this kind of shrimpy, squiddy looking guy. And he's wearing what looks to be like a an interstellar flight suit. So uh-huh. this seems to support like the, the, the theory that underwater creatures in the Star Wars universe perhaps have uh, an advantage when it comes to navigating the three-dimensional world of open space? Mm. Uh, Because, again, think of the Mon Calamari. Where do we encounter them time and time again? uh, Strategic commanders. Yeah, yeah, strategic Uh, commanders during uh, space warfare. So it makes you wonder, do they have some sort of, would they have some sort of advantage? They're used to the oceanic environment, like the open water warfare environment and the survival environment. Do they, are they better than contemplating threats in outer space? That would make a lot of sense.
0: Now, there are still some important differences. I'd say one of the most important differences is even within the water column, you've still got an up and down. You've got gravity and buoyancy, which you don't have in space. In space, there's no up and down. It's just a limitless three-dimensional space. But – uh, even with that, you can still see the advantage where you're naturally evolutionarily adapted to combat within a space where you can move in, in three different dimensions in a way that we can't really on the surface of the earth. Like you can jump and you can mm-hmm. climb a tree and stuff, but mostly you're just going to be on flat ground when you're fighting other people. Yeah. And of course you can have aircraft and stuff, but that's not really part of the ancestral environment that, that shaped our brains.
1: Yeah, I imagine the 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 reverse though is probably true too. If a, like a crustacean alien had an advantage in imagining uh, open space warfare, they'd mm-hmm. probably also be really disadvantaged imagining like a land warfare. Yeah. They would be like uh, like what's your command general and they would be like move Swim sideways. Away. Yeah. <laughs> Swim away, yeah. Get back in the water.
0: Crawl under a rock. <laughs> So this guy's called Therm Scissor Punch, and at first the name seemed weird to me until I connected it to the fact that he has crab-like claws instead of hands. So if he punches you, I guess it is much like being punched with a giant blunt pair of scissors.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. (laughs) Okay, but here
0: we're going to make the lateral leap to real biology because I've got a crustacean with an eerily human bipedal type posture to talk about, and this is the Skeleton Shrimp. From the crustacean family Caprellidae, this is one absolutely to look up pictures of. Go Google skeleton shrimp while I'm talking about this. They look very cool, very creepy. And on top of that, and on top of their, their kind of haunting, creepy appearance, they somehow, to me, look a little bit obscene. I can't quite explain it very well, but they look like an acolyte of some horrible shadow god that was rightly banished to the cavern of tears
1: yeah they are very strange looking and that's even if you're approaching it with the idea that yeah there are a lot of different shrimp in the ocean and not all shrimp you know look like the shrimp that you might buy at the seafood store but these guys especially they I feel like they they earn their nickname uh, the skeleton shrimp or the ghost shrimp they look like some sort of a horrible shrimpy wraith
0: Wraith shrimp, that would be a good name for them. Mm-hmm. I think they're called skeleton shrimp because they typically have a very spindly appearance. Uh, they're almost like a stick insect, but creepier. Yeah. Now, they're typically very small. They range in size from a few millimeters to a couple of inches long. But if you get up close and you look at them with some magnification, you'll notice that they often have a an upright posture where they will stretch their body out as they cling on to something with their back legs. Uh, so in that sense, they look eerily human. But in addition to this, they, they often have a kind of Bent over supplicant posture within that upstanding position, almost looking like they're in prayer again. I guess to that to that uh, rightly banished God.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, in a way, similar posture to uh, old uh, Scissor Punch. There, he looks a little bit bent over in the uh, the stills I have of him.
0: Oh yes, you're right. I've seen, in some of the stills I've seen of him, he looks like he's hanging his head, or maybe like he's about to bow down at the altar.
1: Gravity is really hard on him, but. He must gamble. He must play cards. <laughs> uh, so I was
0: wondering if my raw sense of obscenity when looking at a skeleton shrimp comes from the different body parts that seem to defy type. It has antennae that look like legs and claws that look like heads and little claws near the face of the actual head. Its, it's main claws are called nathopods, and it has smaller nathopods near its face that look kind of like uh, – uh, I don't know, like hip facial hair, facial, or I don't know how hip it would be. The kind of facial hair that makes a statement. Mm-hmm. Now, despite being called skeleton shrimp, these are not exactly super closely related to the shrimp that you would eat in your shrimp cocktail. Um, Skeleton shrimp, in fact, consistent with what I was just saying about their their different weird claws and legs, they are of an order of crustaceans known as amphipods, which literally means different feet as opposed to related crustaceans that have more consistent sets of feet. And I was reading about them on a page for the Monterey Bay Aquarium that mentions that these animals are sometimes called praying mantises of the sea. Mm. I can absolutely understand the comparison in addition to the of course praying posture I mentioned. Uh the claws look very much like the raptorial forelegs of a praying mantis. So skeleton shrimp are often camouflaged within their environment making forests of seaweed, a really great habitat for them. Uh, They're often found clinging to bryozoans, hydroids, or eelgrass, sometimes even in patches of sargassum, which we talked about last week. Though skeleton shrimp are found in other habitats as well. You can find them on a ship's hull or on some other animal's body even. One video I was watching of skeleton shrimp showed hundreds, I don't know, maybe thousands of tiny skeleton shrimp clinging to the the scales of a scorpion fish oh, and wow. crowded right around the fish's eye. I, I tried to took a, take a screen grab so you could see it here, Rob down below, uh, but they're just crowded around the eye and all over the top of his head. And, and they're just
1: swaying around in the water and well, the fish does not really look put out. I know, like at first glance, these look like eyebrows and like, tufts of hair, yeah. almost kind of zattish tufts of hair, you know?
0: Oh, yeah, sometimes they can look quite fuzzy, especially when the females are carrying their brood along with them. Uh, mm-hmm. Like after mating, they, they reproduce sexually, and uh, after mating, the females will sometimes carry around what looks almost like a ball of dandelion fuzz or something, <laughs> but that's all their young that, that haven't left the mother's body yet. Now, the different appendages jutting off of their bodies provide a range of different ways to survive. In general, their back legs are for gripping onto a substrate, and this is where you get the bipedal posture here. You will very often see skeleton shrimp clinging to something, a piece of seaweed or even a scorpion fish's head or something, with their back legs while their body is stretched out above that, looking like they're standing up and reaching out into the water. And then meanwhile, while they're clinging with their back legs and and standing up like this, their larger front legs with the folding features that look like mantis claws, these can be used for grooming the body or for violence in fighting each other, which it seems like they do a lot, or for snagging food. And the antennae coming off of their head apparently can sometimes be used for filter feeding. They eat everything, it seems. Uh, they, they, or different, ver- uh, different species of them will eat different things sometimes, but they're, they're pretty omnivorous. They scavenge for floating detritus, meaning particles of dead organic matter that are just sort of like hanging around in the water. Sometimes they eat algae, or sometimes they act as predators. They can snag, kill, and eat live prey, for example, worms or crustacean larvae. And though they look very bipedal when they're attached to a substrate and reaching out into the water, uh, I thought this was interesting. They generally move not by walking on their back legs, but by gripping the substrate, folding their body over, and then sliding along like an inchworm. Again, very creepy. And there's another fascinating comparison to the praying mantis. Some species of skeleton shrimp practice sexual homicide, where the female will kill the male after mating, sometimes by stabbing them with a special claw and injecting them with venom, uh, which this strikes me as a very interesting example of convergent evolution because, of course, this is uh, there, there's this superficial resemblance between the body form of a praying mantis and a skeleton shrimp. They, they have these similar raptorial forelegs and, and similar posture and stuff. And like a praying mantis, sometimes the female will kill the male after mating. Uh, though I didn't see much about the female eating the male after mating. Maybe they do, because sometimes these uh, skeleton shrimp are cannibalistic, but mainly I just saw about killing the male with this venomous claw. I was wondering why it would be that the female would kill the male after mating. I I wonder if this is in part to prevent the males from cannibalizing them or their offspring in the future. Uh, So there are a couple of things there, one of which is that Mating. uh, So, of course, these crustaceans, like other crustaceans, they have to grow by molting, right? Because Mm -hmm. having a hard outer exoskeleton, you can't get bigger with a hardened outer exoskeleton. You have to shed the exoskeleton and then come, come out as a larger, soft version of yourself, and then the outer layer of you hardens into a new, larger exoskeleton. This is the molting process, and apparently skeleton shrimp can only mate when the female is freshly molted. So I don't know, possibly that means that she could be in a in a more vulnerable position around the time of mating, or it could be to prevent males from from eating the new uh, larvae that will be coming along soon. I don't know. I, I,
1: I wonder. I like the idea that they have a they, they may have a special claw for this though. Oh
0: yeah, yeah, with the, with the venom in it. Apparently the males also sometimes have venomous claws which they use for fighting each other. I think in in some cases at least for access to mating.
1: Hmm. Real scissor punches there. Right. Exactly.
0: But as I said already, skeleton shrimp are really something that you need to see with your eyes to appreciate. So I would highly recommend looking up some pictures and looking up some videos of these animals. They're very small, but they're beautiful, creepy, unsettling, uh, worth your attention. Absolutely. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions
3: apply. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber. Live like a guggenmianer. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and hypergig for details. Snag a job is where
2: America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
1: All right. I think we have time for one more specimen here. Oh, boy. And for this one, Joe, I'm going to have to ask you to come to the planet Naboo with me. Well, I'll, I'll always go to Naboo. Well, I mean, it's an interesting world. I would say one of the most interesting in the Star Wars universe, because even outside of its important role in galactic history, it has just incredibly rich fauna. Uh, you have human, human settlers coming to the planet at some point, and then there's signs of an elder civilization. But you have this native Gungan population um, that are an advanced amphibious species that make their home in underwater cities and the planet's expansive underwater oceans. Uh, Naboo seems to have a, a vast uh, number of, of impressive land animals, many of which are used as battle mounts by the Gungans. But then you have this this shadowy underwater realm, uh, that is home to just many, many marine organisms. And there's a fabulous uh, section in The Phantom Menace where we get to explore it a bit. Uh, it's the, uh, the scene where we have our, our main characters there uh, with, um, with the kid, I think, and, and, uh, and Jar Jar, and they're in a submarine, and they are attacked by one giant underwater creature after another, uh, mm-hmm. each one bigger and more horrifying than the last.
0: Out of the frying pan and into the fish.
1: Yes. So the, the first one that attacks is this uh, thing that's an uh, OPC killer that looks kind of like a, like a deep sea anglerfish type of a, uh, of a thing. Then they're attacked by the colo clawfish, which looks like a cross between a crocodile and an eagle. And then finally by this even more titanic Sando aqua monster, which is just an apex of apex predators. Looks like some sort of a salamandry um, giant.
0: Do I recall that in this sequence they are trying to, like, take a submarine through the center of the world to get to the other
1: side of the planet or something? I don't remember if they're – I don't remember if they're actually going through the center. But they are at least – at the very least, yeah, they're going through uh, the, the, the deep underwater sections of the, of, of the world to get to a specific location. Okay, okay. Maybe it might just be underwater caves. Yeah, but I don't know. It could be if it is the, if it's the former, then it it's Dante esque and it's and uh, it's nature, right? Oh yeah. But uh, but anyway, the, the the creature of these three I want to talk about is that middle one, the colo clawfish, which uh, which is pretty neat looking. I mean, all three of these are impressive uh, creatures. This one is. Um, is is again enormous. Its head is larger than the Gungan sub. Uh, we're told uh, in like the Alien archive and other books that they can reach uh, lengths of at least forty meters or one hundred and thirty-one feet. They're long, bioluminescent predators with mandible-like forelegs to grip the, their their prey, and this long mouth of razor sharp teeth. And I and I believe they're supposed to have venomous fangs in there as as well to uh, partially or completely disable some of their prey. And they can unhinge their jaw. Like like... Like a terrestrial snake, in order to eat prey larger than their own head. But the part that interests me the most here uh, is this one little tidbit that uh, that is described in the Star Wars Alien Archive book. Quote, however, Kolos must ensure their prey is dead before ingesting it. Their digestive systems are slow, and they run the risk of being eaten from inside out if the prey remains alive. Whoa. So, obviously, that got me thinking. I was like, is there anything like this here on Earth? And uh, I I found an excellent article on this in uh, BBC Earth by Sandrine Kirstamont. This is from 2017. And and they made some wonderful points on, on this. So basically, as the author points out, you'd probably need two key realities to be in place for something like this to happen. So first of all, the animal would have to survive the jaws of its attacker. It would have to be swallowed whole. No fatal crushing. No incapacitating venom, uh, you know, uh, inserted into mm-hmm. the creature. It would no uh, no death roll or death shake. Yeah, no death roll. No death shake. No intentional breaking of the bones, like you see with, uh, you know, like a cattle do to uh, to its uh, uh, you know rodent prey. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, it would it would just have to happen in the case of an animal that just gulps its prey down whole. Secondly, the digestive juices would have to be weak enough and or the prey's outer covering would have to be resilient enough for it to survive entry into the stomach, at least initial entry, if not its entire time there. Yeah. So it seems like maybe there's some
0: risk at like swallowing whole a creature with a hard outer layer. Like if you swallowed a whole crab, that could be pretty bad.
1: Right. And then also it would help if the prey in question has some sort of ace up its sleeve as well. So as the author explains, yes, there are cases where all of these things seem to line up. Um, the first one is the rough skinned newt can survive being swallowed by a frog. And in, in, in large part, this is because it packs enough toxin to kill the predator before the digestive juices overpower it, quote, then the newt simply has to crawl back up the dead frog's throat and out of its mouth, <laughs> which is pretty badass. I like that. Yes, that is power you can respect. Now, the next example is is even weirder and maybe maybe not as as cool uh, in the sense that, like, it's not a full survival story, but it's still really amazing. Mm -hmm. And that is the case of uh, the Bromini blind snake, a tiny natural burrower, and it has been observed to survive the digestion of a toad and emerge out the other end of the toad. Essentially, Swallowed by the toad and then just wriggles through the rest of the way and uh, out, out the rear entry um, or the rear exit, as it were. Uh, so in these cases of survival, it also really helps if, if if it may even be essential that there's not another big meal up ahead of it blocking the way. Uh, I see. But then this is also a situation where protection from the digestive juices seems to be key. This is what the author Kirstamont uh, had to say, uh, quote, But its skin was probably the biggest lifesaver. The closely knit overlapping scales that help blind snakes move on land would likely block gastric juices, preventing them from reaching delicate tissues and organs. The scales of other snakes come apart slightly when they move, so would not have the same protective effect. Oh, it's like a natural hazmat suit. Yeah.
0: I have never I don't think I've ever considered this as a strategy for defending against predators before. Uh, when I've always thought about trying to avoid getting eaten, I've thought about trying to escape or trying to fight back, not preventing eating from hurting you. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, just get eaten and, you know, you'll be okay, probably.
1: Now, uh, it may be a case. First of all, uh, it seems to be a case where this is not certainly not an evolved way of surviving uh, predators, uh, and it also seems to be a case where survival is perhaps a uh, uh, an incorrect term for it because this in the case that it was observed by researchers here, the snake died five hours later, probably due to complications due to lack of oxygen. Because that's the thing, if. Even if you're armored against that uh, that acid or the acid isn't strong enough, mm-hmm. you're still going to be inside that animal for a certain amount of time. If you're not killing it with toxins and cl- climbing out the front, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you're going to take the complete journey through, you're going to be without oxygen. And depending on your biology, you know, that can have very detrimental effects. That itself can be the fatal flaw. Okay, so you're saying this is not – it doesn't appear
0: that these tiny snakes have evolved a capacity to be eaten and survive specifically as a protection against predation. It just so happens, like it's a coincidence, that some of their natural defenses for other things happen to allow them to survive passing through the digestive system in at least this case or limited cases.
1: Yeah, and maybe it's more of a curse, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, maybe. They get to survive the whole process. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, on top of these cases, apparently there are some land snails that can survive the journey through a bird's digestive system. And this is a case where you you have another important helpful fact here, and that is speedier digestion time. So just less time spent in the bird's digestive system. That means less exposure to the digestive juices coupled with the natural protection of the snail shell, which is key, but also the mucus of the snail might also help serve as a protective barrier. Oh, like a chemical armor. Yeah, and so you have some aquatic snails as well that have been uh, that have been observed to be very uh, 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 resilient to digestion. You have nematode worms, of course, some of which are true internal parasites. So, yeah, you know, once you get into that territory, I think we're we're more inclined to, uh, if not expect, but you know, not be surprised by that kind of resiliency. Uh, things that that survive in the digestive system of of um, of host organisms but you generally don't think about snakes <laughs> salamanders and other things uh you know ha- having a chance once they're actually in the predator's gullet rob you have opened my eyes <laughs> so with the to come back to the, the planet naboo uh, I, you know, I guess the idea here is that we're largely talking about other deadly predators in the depths of naboo that after having been eaten then turn on the predator uh, host here um uh, you know, it's just that that crazy an environment. Uh, so it it seems entirely feasible that you could have something like this. Like maybe there's one particular type of fish or uh, you know creature in that uh, deep sea uh, underground environment at Naboo. And if it eats those, it gets too excited about them. Maybe it's maybe it's uh, venom doesn't work on that on that particular creature. Or sometimes maybe it doesn't use its venom um, you know, often we see that with snakes, right? They're not going to use their venom every time if they don't have to. It is, a, it is a, an important resource. But maybe that's a fatal mistake for the, uh, the colo concerning certain prey species. You don't want to underestimate what you're eating. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, that's all I have, Joe. Should we close the compendium? Let's, let's close it up. Now, obviously, there are tons of other creatures and aliens in the, uh, the Star Wars universe. So, you know, perhaps there are some other really good candidates that we didn't touch on. Uh, if you have suggestions for the future, let us know. Likewise, you know, we could always take this approach to other uh, you know, fictional ecosystems and, uh, and take a look at those. I know we had some fun uh, talking about the sandworms of Dune uh, mm. several years back. Um, Dune is yeah. coming back. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I need to revisit. I think I have some some ideas jotted down about things we might uh, might consider when uh, we get a little closer to uh, to Dune time. Well, that's exciting. And hey, there are there are probably other worlds I'm not even thinking of. I mean, I guess there's Star Trek too. I don't think we've ever done anything on Star Trek. If we if we have, I'm certainly not remembering it. Did you actually watch Star Trek? You, you weren't really a Star Trek guy, were you? I wasn't an original Star Trek guy, but uh, there was. I, I watched tons of next generation and oh, tons okay. of deep Space 9 okay um, and, uh, and and you know some of the movies but uh, yeah that, that was my my area like I think it was like every evening at 9 p.m next generation was on and I always watched it like that was my go-to for a while.
0: I like in the. uh, I haven't seen all of the Next Generation, but I like those episodes. I think especially in the early seasons of TNG, where they would go down to a planet and it would just look like a 1990s, uh, you know, family portrait photo studio
1: with some potted plants on it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I remember some of those settings.
0: I think I've said this on the show before, but I I don't know exactly why. I always really really love a good cheap indoor for outdoor set.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I, I. I've also really been, uh, been thinking about this a lot in terms of the, the 1990s Outer Limits series, mm-hmm. where they have some great sets on that show, but also each episode is like, okay, what are they about to film in, like, the Toronto area that they're going to make look like the future or <laughs> or the post-apocalyptic world. Like, uh-huh. uh, th- there's some interesting choices at times where it's like, um, you know, it's it's not really an impressive building they're working with here, but they, they try and figure out ways to shoot it in such a way that it feels fresh and different compared to all these other episodes they're pumping out.
0: So they're actually writing
1: around the secondhand sets and costumes and stuff? Um, they, they seem to, I, and I haven't seen all the Outer Limits yet, but they seem to do a pretty good job of of not repeating themselves, which I think can be hard when you have so many episodes that are about being trapped in an alien spaceship being trapped in a, mm-hmm. in a uh, survival bunker you know like a lot of the same basic setups are going to be in place like I wonder how many different alien hallways uh, they create alien spaceship hallways they created for this show and still found a way to make them feel different enough if, if not you know substantially different
0: it's the mark of a good bottle episode different yeah. enough.
1: Yep, just different enough. All right, should we wrap up? Let's wrap up. If you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
2: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple
0: Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.